Tonight, the believer's call. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians has been called the queen of the Pauline epistles. The book has also been called the believer's bank the Christian's checkbook, the treasure house of the Bible, and for good reason. Because in this epistle lies the great themes of our riches in Christ, our redemption and heaven, our reconciliation and heaven, our resources and heaven. And I couldn't help but thinking that when we were looking at Joshua, and we were talking about victory, how pleasant it is to go from the subject of victory and then go to the subject of heaven. And what are some of those resources? We're called by God. We're saved in Christ. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We have grace and peace in verse 1. We have an inheritance in Christ in verses 11 through 14. Our salvation was planned by the Father in verses 1 through 6. We have an inheritance in Christ in verses 11 through 14. We were purchased by the Son in verses 7 through 12. We're preserved by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. So you see the Father at work and the Son at work and the Holy Spirit, the triune God at work. And if that isn't enough, we're seated with Christ in heaven in verse 14. So in this book, we're introduced to the blessings of God in verses 3 through 14, the knowledge of God in verses 15 through 18, the power of God demonstrated in the living Lord Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 23. And yet, in spite of all that, there are Christians who are ignorant or unaware of all that we possess in Christ in Christ, we're absolved of all the charges against us. We're delivered from condemnation. We're bequeathed the spiritual riches called by Christ, chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, accepted in Christ, endowed with an unchanging inheritance, it says in verse 11. When I was rereading this book and preparing for this study, I, I remember a story that I heard many years ago. And the reason why I remembered it is because it reminded me of my own family. I heard the story of, a, of an elderly Italian man. And he, was, he lied dying in his bed. And the man was weak and suffering and his breathing was labored and walking was difficult. But there on his deathbed he began to smell the enchanting aroma of Italian fig cookies. And they were his favorite. And in, strengthened by this heavenly aroma, he got out of his deathbed. 
He painfully stretched himself up. He walked down the stairs in complete agony. And if it weren't for for the pain, the sweet aroma made him think that he might already be in heaven. And there on the kitchen table, with wax paper everywhere, were hundreds and hundreds of colorful fig cookies. Was it heaven? Was this the heroic act of a devoted wife of some 60 years with what little energy he had? He stretched forth his hand towards the cookie and all of a sudden he got smacked with a spatula and she said, don't you touch that, those are for the funeral. The reason why I I thought about that is because sometimes we think that all that we have in Christ is somehow set aside for heaven. It's set aside for the future. And that is not simply true. What we have in Christ isn't just for our funeral. The book of Ephesians was written for the believer who might be tempted to neglect their riches, to ignore the riches, to postpone the spiritual resources for the sweet by and by instead of for the sweet here and now. We have an inheritance now. We have the fullness of Christ now. We have sufficient grace now. Paul argues that the church was planned by God in verses 1 through 6. Purchased by the Son in verses 7 through 12. Preserved by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. So in this epistle, Paul is going to discuss the purpose of the church in verses 3 through 13. The fullness of the church in chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. God's plan for the faith and faith for faithful living in the church in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Then Paul is going to write how Jesus himself gifts the church and then builds the church in chapter 4 verses 7 through 16. Then Paul's attention is going to to turn to the walk of the believer in faith in chapter 5 verses 1 through 21. The believers walk in love in verses 5 verses 1 through 7, walking in wisdom, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 5 verses 15 through 21. The first three chapters are going to be about belief. The second three chapters are going to be about behavior. The first three chapters are going to be about doctrine. The last three chapters are going to be about duty. And of course, Paul is going to end the epistle writing about God's standards for authority and submission in the church at the end of chapter 5 all the way to chapter 6. And then there's going to be this breathtaking look at our spiritual armor for the spiritual battles that the believer must fight in chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. You know, in 1933, the United States of America made private gold ownership illegal. 
Only limited amounts could be kept in the form of collectible coins or a family inheritance. And the Great Depression left banks empty and resources scarce. And in order to survive, banks were required individuals to withdraw no more than 10% of their assets in any given time period. What are the prohibitions or the restrictions that the believer has when it comes to the premature withdrawal of the resources that we have in the bank of heaven? And Paul is going to invite you to open an account and then to draw liberally from the account. The book of Ephesians is going to have as its theme many things, but he's going to talk about the riches of grace in verse 7, the unfathomable riches of Christ in chapter 3, verse 8, the riches of his glory in chapter 3, verse 16. Paul will remind them of God's gifts, and then he says, till we all come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of the knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in chapter 4, verse 13. Paul is going to use the word riches Five times, grace, 12 times, glory, eight times, fullness, filled up or full, six times. The key phrase in the book is going to be in Christ or in him. And I would encourage you when you read that every time you come across the phrase in Christ, or in him, that you begin to think carefully about how it applies to you. It's used some 15 times. I'm hoping that as we begin our study and as you read this book, I want to challenge you to find those 15 times where it appears in the little letter. Jesus Christ is the source for our riches, the author of our riches, and those who are in him have access to all that he is and all that he has. Do you want to know why? Because the bank of heaven is fully funded. So the big question we begin with, have you opened an account? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul writes the book of Ephesians from a prison in Rome somewhere probably between the year 60 AD and 63 AD. You can find that in Ephesians 3.1 and chapter 4 verse 1 and chapter 6 verse 20. It's at this time, while Paul is in Rome, he's writing these books. He writes the book of Ephesians. He writes the book of Colossians. He writes the book of Philippians. He writes the book of Philemon. A description of Paul exists from an ancient source. It's called the Apocrypha of the Acts of Paul and Thecla. In that Apocrypha, it says, quote, A man... Small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, 
well-built with eyebrows meeting, a rather long nose, full of grace, for sometimes he seemed like a man, and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. In Acts chapter 28, verse 16, we're told the story of of how he winds up in Rome and why he has to present his case before Caesar Nero. I believe that the Gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts was written by Luke as a legal brief to present in part as testimony in his trial. We learn in Acts 28.16, it says, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. The soldiers would come in on shifts and make no mistake about it, as he's writing (laughs) Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I'm sure that the guards must have thought, tell me, what are you writing? What are you saying? And he had amazing opportunities to share Christ. We understand from Acts 28.30 that he lived for two years in a rented house in Rome until he came up for trial. We're not sure if Paul wrote this epistle right before or right after his trial. Some scholars suggest that Paul was freed only to be rearrested, retried, and then executed. We have very good reason to believe that before 65 AD, Paul will be beheaded. According to Josephus, it was about this time, between 60, 61, and 62, while Paul is in Rome writing these words that back in Jerusalem, James has been taken prisoner, the half-brother of Jesus, and he is going to be executed according to Josephus' Jewish antiquities. But here we discover that Paul claims to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. Because Paul was an apostle, and because he was an apostle by the will of God, I'm going to suggest to you right away that one of the reasons why he writes this is to once again assure you that the message that he's giving can be trusted. He goes, I'm an apostle, and I'm an apostle by the will of God. You can trust what I'm saying. By the way, when he says, I am what I am by the will of God, can you say exactly the same thing? Can you say that you're doing the will of God? in your job, in your home, in whatever circumstance that you find yourself? Has your employment been chosen by God? Has your activities been chosen by God? Are you serving and working in the will of God? Or, strangely enough, do you find yourself outside of the will of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 50, for who whosoever shall do the will of my father which is in heaven the same as my brother and sister and mother. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might be able to prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. That term, apostle, is the Greek word apostolos. It means the one who is sent or the one who is the messenger. Sometimes in the New Testament, it described an office. Sometimes it was a title. Sometimes it was a person. A person who was simply sent by God. Or a person who was sent by Jesus. The office of the apostle included the duties of preaching the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Teaching and praying, Acts 6.4. The working of miracles, 2 Corinthians 12.12. The building up of leaders in the church, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So Paul is an apostle. He's a special messenger. He's an ambassador. He's not just a self-proclaimed ambassador or a self-proclaimed messenger. He claims that Jesus Christ himself sent him. And of course, that story is found in the book of Acts. Shortly after Paul sees a vision in heaven and he's directed in Damascus to go to a particular place. Paul's apostolic calling is described again also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verses 8 through 11 where it says, Then last of all, he, speaking of Jesus, was seen by me also. As by one born out of due time. It's an idiomatic expression in the Greek language which, which could be roughly translated stillborn. Or almost like miscarried. The children, most children have a normal pregnancy and then a normal delivery. But... Paul describes himself as one who's born out of due time, that, that he was a post-birth baby. He goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, we preached and you believed, he said. In other words, he gave the message of hope. He gave the message of love. He pronounced the message of the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And there were people, you have to understand, in the first century who are hearing this exciting news for the first time. And they believed it, just like most of you. Maybe you were grown up with the gospel and people preached the gospel or you were somewhat acquainted with the gospel, but at some point in your life, at some point in your life, you heard the story and you believed the story for yourself. What made Paul an apostle? 
He was called by God. He's appointed by the Lord Jesus. And by the way, the emphasis is on that. It's the divine appointment by God through Jesus. Paul's credentials? Trained rabbi, Pharisee, doctor of the law. But Paul's calling was by the will of God. Last Monday, we had an event here with Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager. And one of the interesting things was uh, Hugh Hewitt asked Dennis Prager about his credentials. And then he asked me about my credentials. What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? What gives you the ability to be able to talk on any given subject? For Paul, he describes himself, violent persecutor, blasphemer, unworthy, chief of sinners, postpartum baby, grace. He, he doesn't appeal to the fact that he's a Pharisee. He doesn't appeal to the fact that he's a doctor of the law. But he was all of those things and more. He was educated to practice law among the Jews, among the Greeks. You know how we know that? Because he was born in a Greek city-state called Tarsus in Anatolia, or what you and I would call Turkey. The place where he was born and the place where he was raised was just a few, less than 100 kilometers from this place where he's writing to. And Ephesus, by the way, was one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire. The largest, of course, Rome, with over a million people. The next largest, probably Alexandria, with north of 700,000 people. Ephesus, at the time that Paul is writing it, minimum has a quarter of a million people, close to a half a million people. So if you can imagine, in Littleton, Colorado, there are 200,000 plus people. So if you're imagining some little tiny town, you, you don't have it right. Richard Parker famously said, God doesn't call people who are qualified. He calls people who are willing. And then he qualifies them. What gives you the right? To talk about Jesus. And there's one singular statement that you should be able to make. He loved me. He revealed himself to me. He saved me. When I didn't deserve it. When I was alienated and antagonistic towards God. He came into my life and he saved me. J. Gresham Machen wrote, quote, Paul stakes his life upon the truth of what he is about to say about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And so he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. The word, by the way, translated saints is a borrowed word from the Greek language. It's the word hagios. The ancient Greek writers would use that word 
particularly to describe people who were devoted to the gods. These, this was a word that would have been used to describe people who were devoted to the temple of Zeus. Or when it comes to Ephesus, to the temple of Diana. There was an entourage of priests and people who ministered there in Ephesus. By the way, it contained one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the statue of Diana. I've actually been to the actual grove where the statue of Diana stood. I have coins that feature the statue and the temple before it was destroyed. But the word saint, sanctify, sanctification, hallow, holy, holiness are all transliterations of this particular Greek word. The root word is hagai. Uh, what that means is to set apart or to set aside. I've already used the illustration that at my house I have a pot. It is set apart to make my tea. You can't make vegetables in it. You can't boil corn in it. You're not supposed to use it for anything other than making my tea. When it's used to describe a human being, it broadly meant someone who was set apart for God or the gods. And it referred to the act for the Christian, and when Paul is using the word, of the Holy Spirit's act of setting apart the sinner who is elected to salvation, take him, him out of the first Adam, placing him in the last Adam. Kenneth Wiest writes, this is Positional sanctification, an act performed once and for all the moment the sinner places his faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior. This is followed by progressive sanctification, a process that goes on all through your earthly life of the Christian, continues throughout eternity, in which that person is being gradually conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. I grew up in a religious tradition that asserted that a saint was an extraordinary person who lived an extraordinary life, who performed extraordinary deeds. Those were saints. Those were the people marked by exceptional holiness and occasional miracles. Matter of fact, there's a story of this guy named Guido and Luigi. They ran the house of prostitution. They were the local mafiosos. They were involved in every drug, crime, every illegal dealings that you can imagine. And Guido died. And Luigi came to the priest and he said, I want you to do my brother's funeral. And I want you to say that he was a saint. And the priest said, your brother was the most wicked person I've ever met. He was corrupt, a drug dealer. He was involved with racketeering and prostitution. And the brother said, I'll give you $100,000 if you just say he was a saint. And so at the funeral, the priest said, we've come here to bury this man 
Most of you know that he was involved in almost every illegal activity that you can imagine. Drugs, prostitutes, crime, racketeering. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> According to the Bible, every believer is a saint. Because every believer has been set aside, set apart, made holy through the perfect righteousness of Christ. Saint or saints appear some nine times in the book of Ephesians, more than any other book in the New Testament with the exception of the book of Revelation. In the Bible, the word saint means Christian. Set apart by God through a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we live in a culture and a society where Christian has come to mean a lot of different things, hasn't it? A lot of people will describe themselves as a Christian. What are you? I'm a Christian. Why do you say that? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. But according to the Bible, a Christian is a person who's set apart to God by the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. According to the Bible, when that happens, we become partakers of God's divine nature through faith in Jesus. And that's why we're considered a holy people. Now remember, Ephesus was a major city. In Asia Minor. In the ancient world of the Roman Empire, it was perhaps one of the largest cities. And some of you in the past perhaps have gone with me to Ephesus. I think I've been there some four or five times. In those four or five times, in that region, there was this large city, and then there were some 500 other cities. The oldest records for this particular area date to about 2000 BC. And according to native legends, it was founded by a tribe of warrior women who were called the Amazons. For those of you who have seen Wonder Woman, it's based on a story of Diana from this particular area. Diana is the goddess of the hunt. With the death of Alexander the Great's general and bodyguard Lysimachus, Ephesus came under an alternating rule. Sometimes Egypt would control Ephesus. Sometimes Syria would control Ephesus. And they would alternate their power. But it was taken by Rome in 190 B.C., now, what you have to understand is it is rich and powerful, and it was an amazing city. Some of you have been to San Francisco, which is a port city on the bay. Ephesus is a port city on the bay, and literally the wealth of the region would flow into this city. And so it was called by the Roman people the Bank of Ephesus. 
Now, the reason why, again, this is important is for, for you. You have to understand that when Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, this is a banking city full of wealth, and many of the people who convert to Christ or who become Christ believers have jobs that involve the acquisition of money, the transfer of money, taking of money, the investing of monies. If I were to put it bluntly, it's sort of like the Wall Street brokerage firm of the ancient world. No wonder Paul is going to use the illustration of wealth and riches in a spiritual sense to these people. And he adds, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul adds, faithful. The word faithful combined the meaning of believe with the idea of trust. This word is a word that's also translated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. There it's translated believes. Here it's translated faithful. It's a word that means to both believe and trust and exercise loyalty. So the faithful person is the person who's looked to Jesus as both Lord and Savior. The faithful person believes Jesus, believes that Jesus will save them, counts Jesus worthy of trust. To put it as simply as I can, the faithful are those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, that their lives are set apart to Jesus, that they're trusting Jesus. And so this is the very first call. This is how you open your account in heaven. You're called to be saints, set apart. You're called to be faithful, loyal to the Lord Jesus. Later, Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, that you put on the new man who is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so, again, it begs a question. Have you been called? Do you remain trapped, enslaved in darkness? Do you still serve the perversions and corruptions of this present darkness? Listen to the call of Jesus. Jesus issues a call in John chapter 5, verse 24, where he writes, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, this is Jesus saying, I'm not lying to you. You can have confidence. He who hears my word, doesn't say words, It says W-O-R-D. It's singular in the text. It means the sum and the substance of the message of Jesus. And what is the sum and the substance of the message of Jesus? I came from heaven. I'm the Jewish Messiah. I'm the one who was predicted in the past. I've come so that you could have life and so that you could have it more abundantly. He comes as the solution to the problem of sin. Jesus says, and you shall not come into judgment. That's the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes against God. But you've passed from death 
to life. In what sense? Because those who are estranged from God, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are, who are living a dark and an empty life, haven't responded to the call. So we go from the apostles' call in verse 1 to the believers' call at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Look what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace have been called the twin virtues. In Paul's writings, grace always precedes peace. That's a way of saying grace comes first, peace comes second. How? Because unless you've experienced the grace of God, you won't experience the peace of God. Paul is translating a word that was very popular in the Greek language, but he'll use it in an entirely different way. It's the Greek word charis. And to the typical Greek who wasn't a Christian, who had no clue about what it meant to know or love or, or believe in Jesus, when they would use that term, they would use it to describe something that created joy in their heart. Grandparents would use it of grandbabies. Sculptors would use it as works of art. Naturalists, when they saw something beauty, it, it's something that provoked joy, that had intrinsic beauty. Grace was something that, that had qual the quality of being beautiful or lovely or generating joy. So what does Paul mean by that word? Paul means all of those things and more. Because what he is going to be talking about is that this is something that's given by someone greater and then given to someone lesser. Grace was simply something that was bestowed by the greater onto the lesser. Grace was something that was freely given. Parents would give it to their children. Grandparents would give it to their children and grandchildren. Um, people would give it to their friends and family, but you would never give it to your enemies. And so when Jesus comes, talking about loving your neighbor, but also loving your enemy, Paul is going to apply it to God who gives you grace when you're in rebellion, when you're in disobedience, when you're in darkness, when you're shaking your fist at heaven, when you're walking in emptiness and darkness, when you have no desire whatsoever to know Jesus, follow Jesus, believe in Jesus. Grace is given by God to undeserving sinners for the purpose of salvation. And Paul will obviously write about this later in the book of Romans when he will say, here in his love, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So when Paul uses the word, I think what he means is grace that is given by God to undeserving sinners for the purpose of salvation. I'm sure that he means favors and gifts. 
I'm sure that it includes good and perfect gifts. I'm sure that it includes beneficial gifts, whether physical, material, or certainly spiritual. Someone has called this God's riches at Christ's expense. But you've heard this word so much that sometimes we become inoculated to the word. Grace is like a foundation. Imagine a massive slab, a gigantic rock that supports everything that's on top of it. The foundation is dug and poured in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according, listen to what it says in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. We're going to look at that later on down the road, but for now, whatever the riches of his grace, it includes redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin, These are some of the riches. In the ancient world, again, grace wasn't something you gave to someone who didn't deserve it. Well, actually it was. It was something that you gave to someone who didn't deserve it, but you didn't give it to your enemies. It was withheld from your enemies. And so it came to mean benefits given to the undeserving. And so for the person who says, I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve God's riches. I don't deserve Christ's death. I don't deserve God's love. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely correct. For Paul and Christ's followers, grace was the kindness and love that God gave to his human enemies in rebellion, without strength, Ungodly, Romans 5.6. Sinners, Romans 5.8. Enemies, Romans 5.10. This is the, these are the people who are the candidates for grace. Rebellion. No ability. Ungodly. Sinners. Enemies. I remember sharing Christ with my father. And he said, I can't be saved. I said, why, Dad? And he goes, I've done some things. What things, Dad? Things. What things? You know, things. It was his way of saying, my life and my behavior isn't one that would make me a candidate For God's love. But just the opposite was true. It's the very definition of grace. Undeserved. Enemies. Sinners. And by the way. There's one more thing I do want to say about grace. Grace is the only way. That you can secure salvation from sin. Grace is the only way. That you can escape from hell. Paul, again, writing in Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, speaking of Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to the many. The gift of grace 
comes from Jesus to people who don't deserve it. No wonder, again, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Matthew Henry wrote, grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And you know, when he made his way into the future, towards the end of his life, he began to lose his memory. He forgot so many things. And he said, I'm old. I've forgotten so much. He said, but there are two things that I remember. That I'm a great sinner. And that Jesus is a great savior. By the way, if you lose your mind, if you lose your memory, if there are only two things that you can store upstairs, I suggest that it be those two things. Paul, again, writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Being justified by faith gives peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. So when Paul speaks of peace, of course, from his Hebrew roots, that means shalom. But in the Greek language, it meant to reconcile that which was broken. It was to bring two things that were estranged back together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without a cross, grace without Jesus, living and incarnate, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of man who will gladly go and sell everything that he has, unquote. Perhaps the greatest line of poetry written by Dante, quote, In thy will is our peace. And you know it's the ultimate will of God? That you believe in his son. That you receive his son. That you accept his son. Only people who know God through Christ can ultimately know peace. Now, there might be Moments of peace. Remember, especially if you think of peace as the absence of conflict. But peace is more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a restored relationship. Jesus told his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men in Matthew 4.19. And so that's what Jesus does. He calls you to follow him. And by the way, the disciples didn't make excuses. They left what they had. They followed Jesus And that's exactly what Jesus wants from us. He calls. Paul is called. The believer then is called. In Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the Old Testament prophet said, speaking of the Lord towards Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a spokesperson for the world. God appointed Jeremiah to be a spokesperson. God made Samson a judge. God made David a king. God made John the Baptist a prophet. He made Paul an apostle. And he's made you something. He's made you something. He's called you. And he's made you. And he's given you a gift. And it's the gift that's appropriate for you. 
He's given you the gift to exercise the gift so that it would be done to the glory of God. So whatever God has called you to do, he will gift you and he will equip you. Martin Luther King preached, if a man's called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven played music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. I love that. You might be thinking, I don't know what that is. I don't know what God's called me to be, what God wants me to be. But all believers share a common mission. Whatever it is that God's called you to do, there's at least a few things that we're all called to do. To love the Lord, obey him, and serve him until his guidance becomes clear. And then... When his guidance becomes crystal clear. Paul's message becomes God's call. Jesus calls his disciples to him. The Bible says when he called them, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1. Jesus doesn't draft them. He doesn't force them. He doesn't manipulate them. He isn't going to take away stuff from you or kill your children or impoverish you in order to manipulate you, in order to get you to do what he wants you to do. But make no mistake about it, God will do what's necessary. According to Paul's message, as we continue in this book, you're going to discover several elements. He's, going to, he's chosen you. He's adopted you. He's accepted you. And this becomes so very, very important. And so Paul notes, when Jesus calls you, he brings you grace in order to bring you peace. When Jesus calls you, he expects a response. Have you opened up your bank account? Because Jesus has already placed the riches of your inheritance in your account. Paul is going to provide a breathtaking description of the wealth of blessings that we have in Jesus. And again, each person in the Godhead blesses us in, chapter, in, in verses 1 through 14. He's going to pray for the Ephesians that they would understand these blessings, that they would understand the power for their life. And that's what I've been praying for you all week long. And as I prepared for this message, that you would understand your blessings that you would understand the power for your life. We're going to find out more about it in verses 15 through 20, 23. But just remember, 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 remember. You're called to be a saint, so be holy. You're called Christian, 
So be Christ-like. You're called salt. So be flavorful. You're called light. Be true. You're called epistle. So be legible. You're called soldier. Be courageous. You're called rich. Stop acting poor. You're called to be faithful. So remain faithful. And so the adventure begins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your love. Lord, we know that you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Lord, you've revealed that we have an exalted position through grace. And that, Lord, you want to reveal to us what it means to be members of a body. And what it means to live a life. Because we are chosen. And because we are accepted. And of course... Lord, I can't help but think of the very real relationship between Ephesians and Joshua where we are invited to heavenly places. Lord, we know that we live in a world where there's often conflict and there's often failure. But we also know that there's an opportunity for victory for rest and for possession. Lord, I pray we wouldn't abandon the lessons that we've already learned in Joshua as we begin to embrace the new lessons in the book of Ephesians. And so again, Lord, teach us about what it means to stand in grace and then walk in service. Jesus' name. Amen.